your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Verses 17 through 21. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we come to you. We desire that our hearts would tremble at your word, rejoice at your word, and be sanctified by your word. We pray that you would, by your spirit, uh, anoint me in my preaching and anoint each one of us in our hearing and interacting with your uh, word. We pray that you would receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So far in Acts chapter uh, 20, we've seen that God calls us to be steadfast even in the face of misery and depression. Uh, We saw second what a uh, church service in Troas looks like on a Sabbath in the first century. And then we looked at how everything in life, even the most mundane things like traveling here and there, need to be orbiting around Jesus Christ just like Uh, planets uh, orbiting around the sun. And we're coming now into the speech that um, Paul gives. And this is the only speech we have recorded in the book of Acts where he gives it to believers. All of the other ones are evangelistic. And I think there is some fantastic material in here. We're going to park on this for uh, a little while. And uh, I've divided this up into five parts. A look backward, verses 18 through 21. A look forward, verses 22 through 24. A look inward, verses 25 through 31. Look upward, verse 32. And then another look backward, verses 33 through 35. Now, we'll look at them thematically when we get to those, but this is, in my mind, a convenient way of looking at his uh, speech here. And so we're only going to deal with this first part of verses 18 through 21 today. And uh, we're going to be trying to evaluate our ministry, whether it's ministry in the church or ministry in the the family. Uh, What Paul was doing is he was laying his life open, uh, just like he was an open book to be read, and he was saying, I want you to evaluate your ministries based on the ministry that I have had. Now, Paul is not chained to his past. Uh, He's always pressing forward. And yet he learns from the past, and I think we can learn from his past as well. And I've divided it up into three parts, character, the methods of his ministry, and uh, two words that summarize uh, the entire Christian life. First of all, characteristics of his ministry. First characteristic is that it was involved uh, in very personal presence in the people's lives. Uh, Why does he call them... Uh, to meet him in verse 17. That's quite a trip that they're making, rather than just sending off an email or (laughs) a letter back in those days. 
Uh, it's because He wants a personal presence with them. Shepherding ministry requires that. And I'll have to admit that our church doesn't as fully measure up on this as uh, the Apostle Paul did. But this is something that we are striving for. And I want you to look down at verses 36 through 38 to see the kind of relationship that Paul developed uh, with these elders. When he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. He had obviously developed a very close relationship with these elders. Now take a look at verse 18. When they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. Now when Paul's looking back at what he had done right, one of the first things he says is, I lived among you. I was present in your lives. Uh, in what manner I always lived among you. This is the difference between shepherding and herding. Uh, some megachurches, you know, specialize in herding. And you can herd thousands of cattle, but you can only effectively shepherd a, uh, a few sheep. And as he talks with these elders about their responsibilities, he's reminding them, look, your shepherding requires a personal touch. You can't just do it by remote. As the church grew, what Paul had done was he passed off his shepherding uh, ministries that he had with the people to various elders. He kept passing these off to others because it's impossible for one man to shepherd 5,000 sheep. It's just not possible. And so there are a couple of interesting facts I want you to notice in this chapter. And the first thing is that Paul is talking to the elders, not to everybody in the church here. Verse 17, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him... He said to them, this is an elders conference and most of Paul's ministry in the, the last years that he was in Ephesus were revolving around ministering to these elders. Second thing I want you to notice is what he calls these elders. Take a look at verse 28. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Okay, so uh, they're over a flock of sheep. They're shepherding these sheep and overseeing them. And those two words, overseer and shepherd, are rather interesting words. The word uh, overseer is elsewhere translated in the New King James, at least, and in the King James as bishop. And so uh, if you want to know what a bishop is, he's not a guy that wears a funny dress and wears a pointy hat and has a huge cross around him. He's just an elder, okay? Uh, he's an elder like everybody else. So if you want to have some fun with the elders, you can say, hey, Bishop Gary and Bishop Rodney. Uh, they're probably not going to appreciate it a whole lot because that word has taken on kind of negative connotations in the hierarchical kind of government that's out there. But that's really what it means is that there are, are, are two offices, an, an office of bishop and an office of deacon. So they were just elders. Now the other word, uh, shepherd, is elsewhere translated as pastor, which means I'm not the only pastor in this church. Um, Mr. Duff is a pastor. Mr. Swab is also a, a pastor. So they're very interesting words. The third thing I want you to notice is that Paul breaks the, the, the church down into households. He speaks of teaching from household to household in verse 20. He sees households 
as basic units within the church. Now, those three facts, the fact that Paul was talking to the elders, not to the whole church, to the elders, and secondly, that uh, the, the elders are, are shepherds within the, 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 the church and that the smallest unit in the church governmentally is, uh, is the household, if you couple that with the rest of the Scripture, you'll see you, you cannot depend upon one person alone for ministry, like some churches have done uh, in the past. If Paul worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the whole three years, he could not have visited personally every person in that church. Commentators say there was at least 15,000 believers by the end of his three years there. That's, that's their estimate. So it's statistically impossible to be doing household-by-household kind of ministry like some people lay out. So how did he ensure that good shepherding was taking place? Well, he did it by recognizing all the shepherds that God had established within the church. He divided all of the families up amongst the elders of the church. And uh, then he also saw that the father of a household is a shepherd of his family. Uh, We need to exalt the shepherds that are within our congregation. I think there's a tendency in the 20th century to think that the expert has to do everything. And it's a wrong, wrong tendency. I think it destroys body life. There is a tendency to think that the only pastor in a church is the teaching elder. And it just doesn't work that way. What it does is it guarantees ineffective shepherding within the congregation. Now, we started off uh, by pointing out that the shepherding ministry requires a personal touch. It requires closeness. It requires dwelling amongst the people. So there is no way that the ruling elders are going to be able to be a substitute for dad, the family shepherd, for what he is supposed to be doing. And fathers should not expect the elders to be a substitute for uh, dad, the family shepherd. Uh, The uh, fathers must be the ones who protect and who nurture and who feed uh, their, 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 their sheep and who spend time with them. Now, there are times where... Uh, Dad, the family shepherd, is not present. Maybe he's died and there's a single family that's there. You know, the elders can come in and they can help, but they still cannot be a substitute. All you have to do is read Second John, book of Second John, and you realize that the elder John is writing this to a single mom with her family and he helps her, but he does not substitute as a father. Fathers are the shepherds of their families. There is no way that a teaching elder can replace the function of ruling elders. And the congregation should not expect the teaching elder to do so. You can only effectively shepherd a few. How many people did Jesus shepherd? He taught thousands, right? But you're right. He only shepherded 12, right? Jesus only shepherded 12 people. Why? Because you need this personal closeness, this personal touch in order to effectively shepherd. If you read in Exodus chapter 18, you'll see the beginning of the synagogue system of church government, which is what the church is patterned after. It's just a continuation of the synagogue system. And you'll see there that all of the people are broken down into units of ten, ten families, which means we already need more elders in this congregation, right? Uh, That's the way it's structured. Now, of course, Scripture indicates shepherding ministry is not enough because the people need to minister in each other's lives as well. Uh, they need to counsel each other, exhort one another. And some people think, well, I couldn't do that. But Romans says 
every one of the people in that congregation was competent to counsel one another, to exhort, to encourage. You can translate that nutheteo in various uh, ways there. Well, in the same way, I as a pastor not only need the ruling elders and their shepherding ministry, I need you fathers to be shepherds of your families. We cannot work if you're not doing your work. We can't be effective as a church if you're not doing your work. And so spend time personally with the sheep of your household. And as we as a church get much better on this characteristic of personal presence, personal touch, uh, I think we'll be strengthened. So pray for us. Second characteristic of Paul was that he served the Lord in humility. Verse 19 says, Serving the Lord with all humility. Again, we mentioned that Paul had opened his heart. It was like an open book, which is a hard thing to do because when you open up your, yourself to other people, they're going to see the mistakes as well as the, the good things. But Paul said this was the thing that he lived by. It was a standard of humility. Philippians 2, 5 and 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. You know, it's so, so easy for us as fathers to allow pride to get in the way of our shepherding. Uh, we have people who buck us. We have people who uh, offend us and it hurts our pride. And instead of doing what a shepherd should do, we start defending ourselves instead of serving. Okay, it's completely backwards and pride can get in the way. Satan loves it uh, when he can get us proud because he will make us ineffective in our shepherding. Now, we've been watching and we finished it, um, a little mini-series on uh, the second president of the United States, John Adams, and we're going to do more research to see how accurate it, it is. But if this is accurate, this guy had no humility with his children. It just grieved me to see the way in which uh, he would not admit to his errors and that he's had some obvious errors, at least on the movie he did. Notice this is not a selective humility. There are times when humility is easy. But Paul was serving the Lord in all humility. When he had success, he wasn't glorying in, in himself. The automatic impulse of his heart was to glory in the Lord because he knew where it all came from. Uh, I think of the... Of the uh, parable of the woodpecker that you may have heard of before. The woodpecker is up on a tree pecking away at the tree and lightning strikes and there are splinters everywhere going and he falls on the ground kind of dazed but he wasn't hurt otherwise and the woodpecker looks up and sees a huge hole and says, wow, I did that. He goes off, tells his friends, he brings them all and shows them this great work that he's been involved in and I think that's the way we are many times. God displays his awesome power in our ministry perhaps it's performing a miracle or it's reconciling a person and we start feeling pretty self-important you know that we're pretty important people for god to be working through us like this and what's it doing it's robbing god of his glory and it's robbing us of future grace and so it's, it, it, this is an area that every leader is going to be tested on it's like an integrity check and when we pass this test the lord ushers us into greater leadership. Okay, sub-point three. Just because you're humble and not preoccupied with your own greatness does not mean you won't be wounded. Does not mean you got, you know, a big uh, shell around you and you're impervious to feeling hurt. Paul was wounded and felt hurt over and over again. And verse 19 goes on to say, he served with many tears. He wept over their sins. He was not stoically indifferent to what they went through. When they suffered, he suffered. 
when people don't, didn't repent of their sins, when they refused to grow, and you know this happens sometimes. People dig their heels in. They're not going to grow at all. He wept over them. He, just, he, he knew what damage they were doing to their own lives and to their own families. Now, here's the point I want to make. You cannot have shepherding without entering into tears from time to time. In fact, a tearless ministry is an anomaly. It's almost like a contradiction. It's a strange sight. And yet many, many shepherds are quitting simply because they're trying to get away from the tears that are out there. There are many dads, family shepherds, who are quitting by getting a divorce because they're sick and tired of being hurt over and over again. They're sick and tired of the tears. There are many pastors who are quitting their jobs. In fact, it's an amazing rate of people, the turnover in pastors who are, are quitting. And why are they quitting? Because they're tired of the pain. They're tired of being uh, beat up on. Recently, I read a story of uh, a guy who actually, I don't think it was probably about four or five years ago, quit uh, the ministry and he uh, took on a position as the director of a funeral home. And when somebody asked him, why did you make this switch? He said, look, I spent 10 years trying to straighten out John, and he's still an alcoholic. Then I spent three and a half years trying to straighten out Harold and Susan's marriage problems. They ended up getting a divorce. Later, I tried for two years to help Bob kick his drug habit, and he's still an addict. Now at the funeral home, when I straighten them out, they stay straight. <laughs> and even though he said it with a twinkle in his eye, he wasn't kidding. He, he, he went on to say, this is really was so troubling to me that I'm weeping over these people and my tears produce no fruit and I'm praying and I don't see any transformation of God's grace in these people's lives. And he just felt like I cannot stand one more year of tears and ministry in their lives. I can't stand one more year. Now, you shepherds, you family shepherds, you dads may be in the same situation in some of your families. You're tired of being hurt, you're tired of crying, and you want out. Well, I want to encourage you to think about this a little bit differently. I want you to think about it this way. Maybe God made you a shepherd in part for your sanctification, to build you up. Because I tell you, when you come to the end of your rope and you, you are crying out before the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, why can't I shepherd these people? You are driven to the cross in a way you would not otherwise be driven to the cross. When you are a man of tears and you're shepherding like Paul was, you are going to grow like Paul did. You're going to grow tremendously. And what you need to, to think about is, what is God doing in my life? Uh, through these tears and through these difficulties that I am facing. Your ministry is not a waste simply because the people that you have labored over are walking away from the Lord. Some people feel like, oh, I'm an utter failure because I've shepherded, I've shepherded, and they're walking away from the Lord. You're not a failure because of that. You would be a failure if you walk away from your tears and if you walk away and bail out on the Lord. That's where your failure would be. And so let tears drive you to God's grace. This is what Jesus did. He was said to be a man of tears. This is what David did. He was said to be a man of tears and he cast his cares upon the Lord knowing that the Lord cared for him. Now sometimes it's women who bail out because they're tired of the pain. 
and they're tired of the tears. This passage applies to you as well. If you want ministry that's going to last and be rewarded forever and ever in heaven, then just realize it's going to be a ministry with tears. Why? Because we're sinners and others are sinners. And we cannot get away from the tears that are out there if we're engaging in significant ministry. Now, whether you're thinking about shepherding in the church, shepherding in the home, tears are an essential component of such ministry. What they show to me is you still have heart. You've not been calloused by the abuse that's been heaped upon you. That's a good thing. If you no longer have any feeling, you've become calloused. You need to ask God to do a little bit of opening. So a heart surgery upon you. It shows that nobody's been able to kill the love that you're displaying to others. Why? Because it's a supernatural love. It's agape love. I have accountability partners who from time to time uh, ask me, uh, Phil, are you still ministering in the joy of the Lord? And they know how to rebuke me. They're not people to coddle me or anything like that. They know how to rebuke me if, uh, if uh, I am not. We've got to have this joy of the Lord. So here's my question. Do you minister to your family with tears? It's not a bad thing. It may be an indication that uh, great ministry is going on. Probably the ministry is God working on your own heart. So Paul served with personal presence, with humility, with tears, and then fourthly with trials. Verse 19. So serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Shepherds like Paul are attacked by Satan. Why? Because they're having an impact. You can't have an impact in penetrating into Satan's territory without there being some backlash into your life. Now, it's very easy to say, okay, we're being effective, you know, and, and these trials. Very easy to say it's another thing to live it out. In 1997, U.S. Senator Rick Santorum gave a, a speech to the graduating class of East Stroudsburg uh, University, and he didn't give some of the you know, nice-sounding uh, platitudes that some people give. He gave a really hardcore uh, message to these, uh, these people. And what he started with was a story of a pastor in South Carolina who had made it his life's ambition to become the president of their Bible college. And for years he had wanted this position and finally he achieved it and uh, was uh, put into office as president. Shortly after that, he ministered for some time, but shortly after that his wife came down with Alzheimer's. And her condition deteriorated more and more rapidly to the point where he just was not able to carry on the rigorous duties of being a president and still be able to take care of him, her. And so he tendered his resignation as president and his peers were just incredulous. They couldn't believe it. Uh, one of the people uh, said to him, what are you doing? Your wife doesn't even know who you are. And the preacher answered, she might not know who I am, but I know who she is. She's the woman I made a promise to until death do us part. Oh, those are trials. And I know some of you are going through trials. And they're trials from God's hand. They're tests from the Lord. And trials make some people give up. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to do exactly what that pastor did with his uh, wife there. It's sometimes impossible, but what I am saying is that pastor was showing the character of his shepherding ministry. He was showing his heart. 
He did not allow trials to make him give up on shepherding. Men, <clears throat> trials do not excuse us from our shepherding responsibilities. I don't care what the trials are. They do not excuse us. Now, your trials may be financial. They may be emotional. They may be demonic attack. They may be slander. They may be persecution. I don't care what they are. If you will lay hold of Christ, like we talked about last week, where every aspect of your life is revolving around Him, then you can test the truth of the promise that Christ gave in Romans 8 where he said that no trial, nothing in life will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. that, That says we will be more than conquerors in those trials. Now, can you say that? Can you honestly say that you are more than a conqueror by God's grace, whether there is tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? See, God many times allows those trials to come into our lives as integrity checks to test the character of our shepherding. He allows those to come. And as we pass those tests, what He does is He ushers us into more and more grace. And wives and children, I really encourage you, pray that your shepherds would pass these integrity checks. Pray for them. Men, what is the character of your shepherding? When you are busy, will you be able to pass the test of personal presence? Are you going to say, oh, I'm just too busy to do what I know God wants me to do in this situation? When you have major success and everybody's bragging on you and patting you on the back, are you going to pass the humility test? Or is it going to lead you to pride and arrogance? When people resist your ministry, and that happens, when people resist your ministry of the Word... Will your character stand up to the tears test? Are you going to start feeling sorry for yourself? Is it going to lead to pride making you fight back and defend yourself? Uh, As many times that will completely choke out our, our shepherding attitudes. When you undergo great trials, will you stand the character test of time? So evaluate your character this morning. And uh, if you find yourself lacking, go to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is rich in forgiveness, that can forgive us for all of our failures, and which is rich in grace and empowerment. You see, what we can do is we can say, Lord, you're the over-shepherd. I need you to live your life through me. So go to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't beat up on yourself. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ. So that was the character of Paul's ministry. Next, let's look at the methods of Paul's ministry. Verse 20 says, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Now, the first method that we see here is that he was giving to them teaching that was very well-rounded, full-orbed teaching. He didn't just harp on his favorite verses or his favorite topics. He gave them, he says, the whole counsel of God. I didn't mean he couldn't have dug deeper on any given subject, but every area of worldview was touched on. Every area of practical living was touched on. Uh, Every area of theology was touched on. He gave them a full-orbed ministry. Now, you can grow in that all your life. You can dig deeper and deeper all your life. But this is what he sought to give 
was a well-rounded teaching ministry. Now, some people think, hey, I can't teach. Uh, I can't even talk, let alone as teach. And I think some people underrate themselves on that. They think a lot more poorly of themselves than they ought to think. I think we can. But even if that was true, even if you could not teach, you can still guide your household. Uh, you can read from a book and say, let's discuss what was read here and see what people, you know, discuss through that book. And if you can't read well, well, you've got uh, others in your family who can help you to read, but you're still the one that's responsible to guide your family in the ways of the Lord and to seek to give a well-rounded ministry. Now, I've developed a booklet that you can download from Biblical Blueprints that will help you to evaluate, are there any weak areas in my children's lives where they're not, they've not been exposed to the whole counsel of God? It's just a, an evaluation tool that you can give. But even a voiceless, invalid father can give guidance and know, where are my children at? And what help does my wife need in, 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 in giving teaching? And what kind of teaching do I need to be bringing? The second thing that I see about his methods is that it was both public and private. He says, I taught you publicly and from house to house. That's pretty obvious when we're applying it to elders. We've got to have preaching. This is public ministry I'm giving here. Uh, this is not uh, per se shepherding. It's public. But there is house to house ministry that he engaged in as well. Elders should engage in both. In fact, recently we, we've decided, you know, it's not uh, enough for us to just meet with uh, the fathers. We want to continue to do that. But at least once a year, we'd like to meet with the whole family and just see, are the shepherds uh, needing more input? Are they, are, do the wives have things that they want to talk to us about? Just so that we can get a, a good feel on that. But again, not undermining the fathers in any way. And by the way, as this starts to happen, be gentle on the, on the shepherds. This is a hard job, you know, to shepherd like this. Be gentle on them. We want this to be joyful for the families. We want it to be joyful for the, the shepherds as well. Now, there's lots of books that talk about this as far as applying this to the, to the pastors, the elders, you know, the, uh, to the church. Uh, that's fairly obvious. But is there a way we can apply this to the roles of fathers in the home? And I say absolutely yes. Every aspect of this can be applied to fathers. I would say that fathers need to have a corporate uh, ministry, as it were, with their families, and this is what we call family worship. Now, if you look at the Westminster um, Directory of Worship and their directory for the, the families, you see family worship was expected to take place every day of the week. Okay? We pattern for you worship together here, but there can be family worship where you give instruction, you give guidance to your family every day. So that would be equivalent to the teaching, him public, teaching them publicly. But then there needs to be at least occasional times when you pull a child aside all by himself and you listen to their heart and you maybe do catechizing, but it may be a situation where you're just trying to find out where is this child at. Uh, maybe you do one-on-one -on -one discipling uh, like, uh, like I do with my kids. But you need to have some kind of individual as well as public or corporate ministry with your, with your kids. So we've looked at the character of ministry. We've looked at the methods of ministry. Let's look last at the message of ministry. And uh, we find this in verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith 
toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful summary, not just of the evangelistic message, which leads people into the kingdom. This is a great summary of the whole Christian life. Calvin said the whole Christian life can be summarized in two words, repentance and faith. You get those two words right, you're going to be driven to the cross, but you're going to be receiving from the cross everything that you need in life. We cannot, we cannot taste of the sweetness of God's provision when we are holding on to something we need to let go of. If you're holding on to idols and you're unwilling to let go of it, you can't, you can't turn around and receive from Him the taste, you know, the drinking of the rivers of His delights as the psalmist speaks about it. Uh, we can't receive His provisions. One of the most grace-filled uh, ministries out there is um, a ministry of a guy who's, who's dead now, but Jack Miller, uh, New Life uh, Church in Philadelphia. He started Sonship Ministries. And uh, what the ministry was uh, about, it was focusing on something that's been hugely neglected in the church, and that was on our position. We are positionally sons and daughters and because of our security in this family as sons and daughters and being loved by the Father, this Abba-Father relationship, it can, it can help to remove bondage to legalism. It can help us to enter into a relational kind of a Christianity. And so even though the ministry is in many ways reductionistic, I really value Sonship Ministries because it's helped so many people out of bondage into joy, into power in, in, in their relationship. But what Miller points out in his book, Repentance and 20th Century Man, is that our whole life is a life of repentance and faith. It doesn't just start the Christian walk. Acts 2 says there can be no Pentecostal power without repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 says, you know, that we can't enter fully into life without repentance. Miller in his book says, to be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without sincere repentance there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father of lights. An unrepentant heart is self-satisfied, proud, and cold. God resists such a heart. Scripture says flatly, God opposes the proud, James 4, verse 6. But the Lord cannot resist the broken heart which has experienced true repentance. He will not. He cannot stay away from repentant sinners. He says, be zealous and repent. Then, as the door of repentance is opened by His almighty grace... He comes in and eats with the contrite ones and fills them with the joys of His friendship. Revelation 3:19 through 20 It is not easy for us to understand this. Otherwise, the Lord would not repeat it so often in the Scriptures. His Word says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, verse 18 it, It's a great book. And if you want to see the way of repentance, if you want to see how it ushers us into so many blessings, uh, I would encourage you to get it. Jack Miller... Uh, repentance and 20th century man. It's not just for the 20th century, it's for the 21st century as well. We really desperately need this uh, today. There's another book that is um, quite good. In fact, it was at the heart of uh, some great revivals in Africa, and it deals with this same subject. It's called The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. But you know, when people evangelize today, they completely leave repentance out of their message. They only focus on faith. Let me tell you something. Any faith that does not have repentance is a counterfeit faith that will not be blessed by God. Faith and repentance, it's always been held. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. 
Anytime you have one, you're going to have the other. But unfortunately, the modern church does not see repentance as key to anything. Or when they do speak about repentance, many times it's just a, you know, a, a trite confession that has no meaning and no heart, that does not crucify the flesh. It is not true repentance. And I think we need to rediscover this wonderful, wonderful doctrine. If you've been praying and the heavens have been brassed to you, God's not been answering, you feel like you're powerless in your ministry, ask yourself if this part of the message has not been held by your heart, is not being preached uh, by you uh, within your families. Uh, when you're working with your children, are you satisfied with conformity? Or are you really seeking a heartfelt, full-hearted repentance? Repentance is not a social thing. He says here, it's repentance toward God. You know, David said, against you, you only have I sinned. He was so overwhelmed with his own sinfulness and with God's holiness, he could see how bankrupt he was. We're all bankrupt if we're not going to the cross. We're millionaires when we do go to the cross, but many times we stay in our bankrupt situation. Now, if with Calvin we see repentance and faith as the summary of the whole Christian life, then there will be, on the one hand, no room for self-righteousness, why? Because we've really known our sins that we're turning from. No room for judgmentalism, no room for self-assurance or cockiness. And on the other hand, there will be no room for the modern attitude that is so careless about the law, so careless about sin, so careless about holiness. Neither one will be able to be there. Sermon on the Mount indicates that the moment a person is regenerated, given a new heart, God implants the principles of repentance right there. He gives them a sense of spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He gives them a, a sense of mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn. He gives them a sense of meekness, of status, of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Without those things, you are not even regenerate. Uh, you might say, I've never experienced that sense of poverty, that meekness, that uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that mourning over sin. Well, you're not regenerate. That's just flat out what it means. You're not a Christian. You might appear to be a Christian. You might appear to be holy, but you are only appearances. You are not a Christian if you do not have the characteristics that the Sermon on the Mount talks about there. But God also immediately rewards those elements of repentance with this, inheriting the kingdom, being comforted, inheriting the earth, being filled. In other words, Christ's call to repentance is a call to blessing. And that's where the flip side of the coin appears, faith. When we truly repent, our faith won't be in ourselves. It's not going to be in other people. It's not going to be in things. It won't be in any aspect of creation. Why? Because repentance, if it's a genuine repentance, forces us to have the only object of our faith in God. That's what repentance does. That's why it's so essential to genuine faith. It forces us to have our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, from whom the power of the Holy Spirit is received. Okay, it's, it's from Christ uh, alone that we can, that we can uh, taste of the delights of the rivers of God's grace. Now, if the whole Christian life can be summarized as repentance from dead works and faith in Christ... It means everything we do that does not flow from Christ is dead works. 
That's what it means. And that's exactly what Paul's epistles say. Whatever is not of faith is sin. He says, whatever is not of grace and is not founded upon Christ will be burned up as hay, wood, and stubble. How can the Old Testament say that even the plowing of the field that the wicked does is sin? Because it is dead works. It does not of Him and through Him and to Him. It does not flow from Christ. It's dead works. We must be shepherding our children with an eye to helping them avoid dead works and embrace life in Christ, fullness of life, walking in the Spirit. So Paul's message to both unbelievers and believers is to abandon a life that flows from the old Adam to embrace the life that flows from the new Adam, Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Faithful shepherding is not satisfied with rule-keeping. Unfortunately, a lot of us homeschoolers were great on helping us kids, uh, the kids, you know, follow rule-keeping. We're great at training them, like we train rats. No, it's not outward conformity. It's not rule-keeping. Pharisees were able to keep rules, but they did not have Jesus Christ. Faithful shepherding is not satisfied with appearing humble or holy or gracious. It wants the reality. It's not satisfied with outward conformity. It wants to shepherd the heart. In fact, I highly recommend another book. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart. You want to reach the child's heart. You don't want to just train them outwardly to conform. As soon as they leave the home, they're going to quit doing what you're asking them to do. You want to reach the heart. And so good shepherding calls us to let go of sin in all independence and by faith to receive all things from God the Father through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that summarizes the entire message of shepherding. And I think these really are the foundations for having joy along with tears, but having joy in your shepherding and bringing joy into your family. If you can achieve the things that we have just outlined in these verses, I think you will be a success in God's eyes even if other people think you're a failure, even if others walk away from your shepherding. Do you think that Paul did not have people walk away from his shepherding after he's invested two or three years in their lives? They walk away and abandon the Lord? Yeah, he's had that happen. It can happen to us as parents. It can happen to any shepherd. But you are not a failure if you will lay hold of Christ in the ways that we have outlined here. And so whether you're a shepherd or whether you're the person being shepherded, I call upon you to embrace these principles. Embrace the character of Paul, the methods of Paul, and the message of Paul. And may God receive the glory. Amen. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You so much that You not only give us Your Word, but with Your Word You have given us the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of Your Spirit. You have freely given us all things. Forgive us for those times where we give up we grow discouraged and we just become overwhelmed when we feel like the shepherding we do is not amounting to a hill of beans. Father, in ourselves, even our shepherding is dead works. And we want to repent of dead works and we want everything we do to flow from the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill us with Your Spirit. Fill us with Your joy. Fill us with Your peace. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit. And Father, may there be rivers of living water that would flow out of our innermost being and bringing healing and encouragement to those that we shepherd. Father, spare us from a, a ministry of legalism and uh, just the letter of the Word because we know the letter of the Word kills. But fill us, O oh God, with the power of Your Spirit. 
that takes that letter and transforms us. And Father, we will be sure to give you the praise and the glory because we recognize it is only you that can prosper the efforts and the things that we are engaged in. And so we submit and lay down at your feet all of our shepherding ministries. And we ask, O God, burn up that which is not pleasing to you. Show it to us. And Father, I pray that you would give to us from your throne that which would enable our shepherding to reflect the shepherding of Jesus Christ and of the Apostle Paul here. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.